0: like to start with some statistics today. I think probably most of us in this room have heard statistics similar to what I'm going to share with you, um, but it's really good to be reminded of these things often, often and to think about them. These are global evangelism statistics from the Joshua Project and Wycliffe Global Alliance. It's estimated that 7,417 unreached people groups still exist in the world today. That's almost half. There there is somewhere in the ballpark of 16,000 unreached people groups. Those are people groups where there are virtually no Christians, no one who can share the gospel with their neighbors. In addition, or... Related to that, there are 6,661 languages without a full Bible. So for unreached people groups, that's a total of 3.37 billion people who are unreached. For languages without a Bible, those languages are spoken by 1.5 billion people. And languages without any scripture whatsoever... Uh, number 1,892, and that's a total of 145 million people. That's just just looking at the groups of people who are known either to be unreached or not to have access to the Bible or some combination of the two. I think for, for those of us who recognize that many, perhaps the vast majority of Christians who who claim that for themselves are are not true followers of Jesus, I think um, that that should make us even more sober when we realize that not just are there so many people who have never had opportunity, but there are lots of other people who have had opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus and have either not responded to it in the form of overt unbelief or in the form of not doing the will of the Father. When we think about the scope of this problem of, of the rest of the world that needs to be reached, it can sometimes make us feel like this is, this is too big. How, how can we ever see this happen? Have you ever felt like the task God has set before us is too great? It's, it's not enough just to sit back and, and to say that we'd be content with our own salvation. There are so many other people to think about. And the task is great, but God gives us encouragement from a rather surprising passage that I'd like to turn to today. From this passage, we learn that God Almighty works with his people to make his latter temple greater than his former temple. So you can turn in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And I'm also going to give you a handout. You could pass it around. You might find this helpful. If, if the handout just confuses you or if you don't understand like what, what it's doing, just, just read out of your Bible. That's fine but some of you might find this, this visual reference to be helpful as well. I'll be reading from the NKJV. Haggai 2, verse 1 through 9. Haggai 2 says, In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel governor of Judah and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest and to the remnant of the people saying Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory and how do you see it now in comparison with it is this not in your eyes as nothing Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this passage that has been written down for our instruction. I thank you that you spoke long ago and gave encouragement to your people when they were seeking to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And I thank you, God, for the encouragement that you have in this passage for us today as we seek to build your final and your ultimate temple. I thank you that we do not build alone. In Jesus' name, amen. So to give some historical background for this passage, this comes in the, it's the, it's the second story in Haggai. It comes after the people had started to rebuild the temple for the second time, not not the first time around. So this takes place after the people of Judah were sent into exile and after they came back from exile. And very shortly after they came back, they started to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed in Jerusalem. They had all these resources, these treasures of gold and silver, this support from the king of Persia who sent them back, but they also faced opposition from the people around them who were not God's people, who who were not people of, of Judah or Israel. And because of this discouragement, because of this opposition, they stopped working on the temple and God's house was left in disrepair. Sixteen years later is when Haggai gives his first message to the people, and he rebukes them because they're worried about building their own houses and making those very nice, and they're running about their own business, but the house of God is suffering neglect. And so because of that, Haggai, speaking on behalf of the Lord, tells them that they need to go up to the mountains and gather wood and build his house. And then their fortunes will be restored. Then God will again turn and bless them. And in a very impressive display of obedience that's, that's rare in the Old Testament, the people actually respond to this message, and they do just as Haggai says in a, in a very short frame of time. It's only a, a couple of weeks from the time Haggai starts speaking to when the people start rebuilding the temple. And from the moment they choose to obey God, God tells them that he is with them. And we see a number of themes in Haggai's first message that are going to carry over into the story that we're reading today. The first is that God's people are now spoken of as the remnant. And this is important. The, the language of remnant or remainder is something that's very common in, in the, the prophets who are speaking about God's people after exile because there's a lot that, that go away into foreign countries never to return. But there's a people who return, and even more specifically, a people who obey God. And they're known as the remnant. At the start of the last passage we looked at, God call, God speaking to Haggai and speaking to Zerubbabel and Joshua calls the people of Judah this people. It's kind of a, this language of distance, but by the end, when they obey God, He's speaking about them as the remnant, and now He's identifying them as this group of people who are obedient. And we see at the start of this passage, if, if you remember, that God also refers to his people as remnant. The other thing we see at the start of this passage is that there's this threefold office that appears. You have Haggai, the prophet, working with Zerubbabel, the governor, who's in, in some ways kind of a kingly figure. And they're also working with Joshua, the high priest. So you have prophet, king and priest. And as we learned last time, this is known as the the Munus Triplex, which is just a Latin phrase that means that, that indicates this threefold office. And the reason it's important is because Christ is acknowledged to have fulfilled this threefold office, taking on all of these roles together. And so we learned last time that the the threefold office working together to rebuild the temple is is pointing to Jesus and and the work that he does and like I said before you see that at the start of this passage the last theme that I'd like to point out that carries over from chapter 1 is this idea of God of hosts or the Lord of hosts this is an important title and if you, if you heard, it's, it's used quite a lot in this passage, actually used uh, six, six times and then uh, eight times, says the Lord, is, is used. So Haggai is really drawing on this authority. And the reason it's an important title is because hosts just simply means armies. And it's, it's conveying this idea of God's power and giving encouragement to his people in the face of their situation. Okay, so to repeat, the main idea of our passage today is that God Almighty works with his people to make his latter temple greater than the former. And we see this first in in verses 2 through 5, where God addresses the the Rebuilder's present discouragement. And then we see that in another way in the latter half, verses 6 through 9, where God promises to intervene for the glory of his temple. Okay, so the first the first oracle Haggai gave in chapter 1, I called the call to action because Haggai's telling the people to rebuild and they respond. And this oracle that he's delivering today is the call to courage. The call to action the call to courage. Next time we'll look at the call to perseverance. And then the final oracle that he gives is the call to faith. Let's just situate ourselves here with the, the first thing that's, that's said. We're told that Haggai gives this in the seventh month on the 21st day of the month. This is a little less than one month after the people first obeyed the command and began to rebuild And it seems like a month into the work, they're beginning to grow discouraged again. This does not bode well for the success of this rebuilding endeavor. If the the first time they weren't able to finish, now they're a month into the second try and they're getting discouraged. And there's one reason, there's one main reason uh, for the discouragement. It seems to be coming from the people who saw the first temple. The first temple, the temple that Solomon built, was incredibly impressive. There are beautiful, lengthy descriptions of it in scripture. And now these, these older generations who who returned from exile but, but were not born in exile and had seen the, the earlier temple, they're comparing it to the, they're comparing the present work to the temple of before. And they're really discouraged by it. We're told that the older generation actually weeps when they see the foundation of the temple laid in Ezra. And that's specifically with reference to the, the first rebuilding attempt. But I think we, we see a similar idea here. So the older generation, they're just really not impressed by the work that's going on. And God doesn't ignore this discrepancy between what was and what now is. In fact, he he addresses it head on. This this line of questioning, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, it's not meant to be punitive. He's not mocking them. He's identifying with them in their discouragement. He's, he's telling them he knows what the situation is like. <coughs> Let's try and think for a second of of what it would have been like to be part of this older generation. And consider the phenomenon I'm sure we've all experienced that when you're younger, things seem, particularly when you're, you're a child, things seem a lot more impressive and a lot bigger and grander than they are when you're an adult. And a certain author writes about the older generation here who are seeing the, the rebuilding that those who had seen the former temple would remember it through their eyes as children. Childhood memories of older adults are often fuzzy and sometimes exaggerated. I think we've all experienced that. These people might have remembered the former temple as greater and more splendid than it really was. This could have added to their dejection when they saw the smallness of the new temple. So the, the temple of Solomon was incredibly impressive, and now add to that their, their memory of it as children. To illustrate this, this point further, I, I would like to mention uh, my, some of my, my own experience. When I was little, my family would go every summer to this, this camp called Pilgrim Pines, and there was a, at the time, I thought, gigantic rock outside of the cabin we would always stay at. My siblings and I loved to Play on that rock felt like a a mountain. We would challenge each other, who's going to be king of the rock. Um, It was really hard for me to climb because I was so little. And then years later, I returned to Pilgrim Pines, and I was excited to like stay at this cabin again and to see the rock. And I walked up to it, and I'm like, "Is this the same rock? Like this is tiny. This is like not very big at all. Like I'm taller than it." And it was it was really disappointing. And I think that that phenomenon could be adding to the discouragement of the old people, which is then contagious, and it's, it spreads to, to all the people in the rebuilding effort. I think we can do this as well. We can grow discouraged when we see the monumental task that is before us, not even, not even when it comes to world evangelization, but in our own community as well. Sometimes, when we read the New Testament, when we see the, the pattern of church that's there, or even when we, we read the, when we read about the early church, or maybe the early Anabaptists, pick your, your era of church history that, that you look back at, and you, you think, this is the golden age of Christianity. And it's really easy to feel like, ah, oh, that, was, that was then. And the church now just isn't as impressive. There's not as much conviction. There's not as much happening. God, God did amazing things back then, but can he really do amazing things now? I think that some of us have, have this perspective as well where we look back at the, the glory days when, when God's temple, when the church was, was this amazing, impressive thing, and, and we think that it can't be that today we just have a we just have a small little little temple here. It's not very impressive. But this is meant for, for us as well, to encourage us. We shouldn't consider, even if even if we might consider those those former eras, the New Testament church, the early church, um, whatever whatever is, is most powerful for you, when we look back at those eras, we should see them as an example for us, but not as the as the golden age, as if somehow we've slipped into a dark age and we can never reclaim that hope. So God encourages the people with his presence and he calls them to courage. He says, be strong three times. Once to Zerubbabel, once to Joshua, and once to all the people. This word, be strong, is used very often in scripture. And it often accompanies the one of the other commands we see here, where God says, do not fear. I'd like to just look at a few um, scriptures that, that show this really well. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 31. We'll read verses 6 through 8. This is Moses speaking to Joshua shortly before God's people are going to enter the land. He says in verse 6, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you? He will not leave you nor forsake you. Sorry, that was Moses speaking to the people of Israel. Then he speaks to Joshua here in, in verse 7. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him, in the sight of all Israel Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you, he will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. So be strong. It's a call to courage. And it's often paired with the, the, negative, the negative command, do not fear. And so we see the, 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 the resemblance there. Also, notice that it comes with a, a promise of God's presence, just like it does in Haggai. And this is something that's that's very common. Okay, let's look at two more examples of it. Let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 7 through 8. 2 Chronicles 32, 7 through 8. Now this is Hezekiah speaking to the people of Israel, and they're facing this intimidating threat of the Assyrian army. And he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, nor dismayed, before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God, to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So now you have this this looming threat. And Hezekiah reminds them that with them is an arm of flesh, but with us is is the Lord. With us is his powerful hand. So you see this often in a military context, but you also see this command given in an earlier context that's more relevant to the passage that we're reading today. So turn to our last reference here, 1 Chronicles chapter 28. We're going to look at verse 10 and verse 20. 1 Chronicles 28. This is David speaking to Solomon at the end of David's life. He's preparing Solomon to build the first temple. And he says, consider now for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Do it is actually the the same command as as work that we see in Haggai. So very similar call that's given here. And in, in verse 20, David says again to Solomon, be strong and of good courage and do it do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. The people living in the time of Haggai might have been tempted to think that was that was Solomon's day. He had everyone, all of the, the nations giving tribute to him. He had so much wealth. He was in a situation of political power, but we're not. And yet the same imperative given to Solomon is the one that Haggai gives to them as they prepare to build the second temple, because it's not about the wealth that Solomon had, it's about God's presence with them. And this command to be strong, it's grounded in this idea of God's presence. God says in verse 5, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Well, what is this, what is this word that God covenanted with them? What is this, this covenant he, he made with them when they went out of Egypt? I think it's, it's this promise of him going with them into the land. After the golden calf incident when God is angry with his people, he, he says, I'm not going to, to go with them. I'll just destroy them. So Moses intercedes for the people of Israel, and he says, God, you have to go with us. If you don't go with us, how are we going to defeat our enemies? How will the other nations of the world know that, that we're your people? This is the, the thing that sets us apart. How will we do this great task if you won't go with us? And so just like, and then God changes uh, his mind. He chooses to, to go with the people of Israel. He listens to the word spoken by Moses. And so God went with the people as they were going into the land of Israel. He promised to do that. And now he's, he's with them in their endeavor of building the temple. Just as God's spirit was in the midst of all the people of Israel and showed them where they should go and where they should stay, God's spirit remains among the people in the days of Haggai. It doesn't matter that there's been an exile in between. God is is still among them, and he wants them to know that. Even after the golden calf idolatry, God was with them, and after the punishment of exile, God is, is still with them. And this is the first, in, right before this, this verse, is the first time that God uses Lord of hosts in, in this passage. He used it earlier in the book of, of Haggai. Now he's reminding the people of this, this title about his power. And this is the God who is in their midst. maybe the people were expecting god's witness to look a little different than this cuz he says he's with them but he also tells them to work god's god's witness doesn't mean that they can kick back and relax he's not going to he's not going to take care of everything for them even though he could do that But God is not interested in in just doing everything. God is interested in bringing his people along with him, of having them be participants in his plan. God calls them to work, not to relax. Recent, Actually, just just yesterday, I was talking with uh, another brother in the church. He had gone to visit his family over Thanksgiving, and he was telling me that some of his relatives were were expressing kind of this fatalistic worldview to him. They said something to the effect of just just in general, their way of viewing the world, God will bring it to pass. Why do you worry yourself? Mm-hmm. God will bring it to pass. Why do you worry yourself? Mm-hmm. Think about all the, the different areas where that applies. But that's not what this passage is teaching. A similar sentiment is expressed by was expressed a century and and well over a century ago by a man named Dr. Ryland to William Carey. William Carey is known as the father of modern missions. He's a really impressive individual. We'll be talking a little bit more about him later. But he was a a very determined youth. He had this burden to go reach these unreached people groups, which were a lot more in, in his day. And in response, this man named Dr. Ryland was a little bit flustered with him one day and said, "Young man, sit down when God is pleased to convert the heathen world, He will do it without your help or mine." That's right. <laughs> man, like th- today that that notion is just like so, so far removed from our minds. none of us would ever think that, and we can we can." Thank, in large part, people like William Carey for that. That that notion seems almost inconceivable to the, the church today. But it, it's expressing, it's getting at the same idea that God's presence with us is not an excuse not to work, but it's supposed to strengthen and encourage us for the work. And how much more, if God's Spirit was among the people of Israel, how much more should we take courage that God's Spirit is not just among us, but within us. We have something far better than they ever had. So, God gives His people so many reasons to take heart for this work. And His call not to fear goes beyond His witness with them in, in the present. His call not to fear is grounded in something God is going to do in the future. God promises in verses 6 through 9 to intervene for the glory of his temple. I'm going to read it again here just so it's fresh in our minds. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. First off here, God prophesies that his Sinai glory, will appear to the whole world one day. Why do I say that? Why do I say Sinai glory? I think we see it in this language of God shaking. Shaking heaven and earth, shaking the sea and the dry land, shaking all nations. Flip with me to, we're going to look at, at three references for, for this one as well. So turn with me to Psalm 68, verse 7. We're going to see how this language of shaking is used in other passages in the Bible. It has other uses here, but I think that these are the most relevant ones. Psalm 68 verses 7 through 8 reads, Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. So here, that word, that word um, shaken in, in verse 8, the earth shook, that's the, the same word that's used in, in Haggai. And there's a very clear reference to God's bringing Israel out in, in the Exodus, and then specifically his appearing to them on Mount Sinai. Another psalm that's relevant is Psalm 77 we see a very similar idea. So just turn to Psalm 77. We'll be looking at the end, verses 15 through 20. It's a, it's a little bit longer, but this is important background for understanding the, the reference here. The psalmist writes, You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, and they were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters. And your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Also here, it's very clearly talking about the Exodus. And this language of the waters being afraid is referring to the the crossing of the Red Sea. And so in that context, it it makes sense to to be thinking about the Exodus and to be thinking about Sinai. And then in verses 18, where it says the earth trembled and shook, there's also language of, of lightning, just like the, the, the storm that appeared on top of Mount Sinai when God's glory rested there. The author of Hebrews also has this interpretation that the shaking in Haggai is a reference, the, the once more indicating that there was, there was a time previous where there was a shaking, is a reference to God's appearance on Sinai. So there's a coming future time when God is going to appear like he did on Sinai, but this time it won't be just to Israel, but all the world is going to see this, this shaking. Heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, these are, these are devices called merism. It's when you, when you take two, two opposite poles like land and sea or like heaven and earth and you're using those poles to refer to everything so God is going to shake the, the entire universe like he shook Mount Sinai there's a, another memory from, from my youth where it's just a, a small microcosm of this, this principle um, but I remember sitting in my family's living room one evening when I was younger, and we were talking. It was the, the middle of a, a thunderstorm, and all of a sudden, a lightning bolt struck. It must have been like right outside our living room. It was so loud. It was so bright. The the windows all around us, 360 degrees, or I suppose our living room has three sides, but you get the idea. They all They all lit up. They were just like white like the brightest the brightest light and i was like whoa that that was crazy we all just like were stunned to silence um and that kind like the house shook that kind of shaking that kind of glorious appearance is is just a very small and very localized picture of of what this shaking is going to appear like. And God wants his people to, even even back in the old covenant era, when God was speaking to the rebuilders of the temple, he wanted them to know that he was going to shake the, the whole world. And he wanted them to take courage in that because that includes all of the nations. He specifically says, I'm going to shake the nations. I'm going to shake the the king of Persia who rules over you. I'm going to shake the enemies who surround you on all sides and oppose this work that you're doing. Even the far distant countries that you've never heard of or seen, I'm going to shake all of them. And Israel is supposed to take encouragement from that fact. Okay, the, the next thing God, God is teaching his people here is that he's going to bring the desirable things of the nation to his temple as a result of this shaking. Why do I say desirable things? If you're familiar with this this passage in, in other translations, you might have found it odd in verse 7 that it says, they shall come to a desire of all nations. And... The reason for this is, is that this, this, way, this reading has been almost u- universally abandoned by Bible translations. I, I chose to keep it in here because I, I usually read from the NKJV, but honestly, there's a, there's a much better way to translate it here. First of all, and, and there, there are a number of reasons for this. So I would argue that the better translation would be, the desires of all nations shall come. So first of all, desire in in verse seven can be understood as as plural with a simple change in in the vowel pointing in, in the Hebrew. For those of you who, who aren't familiar with Hebrew, the original Old Testament was was written with just consonants. Hebrew Hebrew used to have just consonants. So uh, and, and even even today, like the the main letters you see are are just consonants, and the the vowels were added later. The vowels are like these these uh, dots and lines that are either below or above the words and so because the vowels are not inspired the the letters are sometimes usually usually this isn't an issue, but Sometimes you can suggest an alternative vowel pointing because the vowels were added when they were added centuries after Jesus' day when this group of Jews called the Masoretic Scribes wanted to add them because knowledge of Hebrew was declining and they wanted to make sure that people could still read the scriptures. And they're, they're very, the Masoretic Scribes were very good in the work that they did. So usually it's not an issue like I was saying before, but... In this case, if you were to simply change the vowel pointings, you could understand this word for desire as plural, meaning so you'd read it like desires. And the Septuagint, the, the Greek Old Testament that was translated a century or two before Jesus, also understands desires as plural here. The, the Greek reads, well, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll get more into the Greek reading later. But understand that they, they take it as chosen things or desirable things. Secondly, the, the, word, the phrase here, desirable things, is not the object of a preposition in, in the original Hebrew. It's there's, there's nothing in between this phrase and the verb. So many translators, and I think this is accurate, just treat it as the, the subject. So rather, than reading, so rather than reading, they shall come to the desires of the nations, understanding that as the subject would make it read, the desires of the nations shall come. Uh, one commentator writes about this. The KJV and Martin Luther took this messianically as the desire of all nations. So they thought, they thought that maybe this was a reference to Christ. But that reading has been abandoned almost universally. Hamdat, the, uh, the word for desire, is singular but should be plural because it is the subject of a plural verb. Okay, so for those of you who aren't grammar junkies like me, hopefully that wasn't, wasn't too much of a, a deep dive there. But I just want, to, want us to, to understand that the, the better translation would be the desires of the nations shall come. And this is a way of speaking about wealth in the Old Testament. God is saying that, like he says with different language in other places, that the desire, the the wealth of the nations are going to come. He's going to to bring this. And that makes a lot more sense of what he says in the next verse. The silver, even what he says at the end of chapter, the end of verse seven, but especially in verse eight the silver is mine and the gold is mine. What is God doing here? Is he just. It sounds a little bit greedy at first. Like, Why, why does God care about like having, having gold and silver? And that's not, that's not the point. He's saying that I'm going to bring the wealth of the nations to the temple and I'll fill it with glory. I'll fill it with this wealth of the nations because that belongs to me. This doesn't belong to the powerful nations around you. It's like this silver and gold is God's property, but it's on temporary lease to the nations around Israel. And so, God has the power to bring it back. And just like the, the former temple was adorned with all of these beautiful works of silver and gold and bronze, God is going to adorn this latter temple as well. Okay, now we're going to turn to the way the Septuagint takes this phrase. The, the Greek is ta eklekta ton ethnon. That means the chosen things or the chosen ones of the nations, which I think is really interesting given what we understand from the New Testament about this picture of, of gold and silver and other precious materials and the temple. So chosen, uh, chosen things or chosen one, the word, the word there is eklektos, And that's often used in the New Testament to refer to God's chosen people. It's the the word that we get the English word elect from. So you can can use that if if it helps you. And so the Septuagint renders this almost in a way where you could understand it as wealth. You could understand it as literal gold and, and silver. Or you could understand it as the chosen ones of the nations. Referring to people rather than, than wealth. I, th- I, think, I think still in the Septuagint, because, because of verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, I think it's still talking about wealth. But it's almost like it, I wonder if maybe Paul got his, his understanding of this concept from, from the Septuagint. So Paul talks about the, he talks about himself and Apollos and other, Apostolic workers as being like builders of God's temple. And he talks about building with precious stones or gold or silver, other materials as well. And he's talking about the work of of church planting. So I think I think that there's room to understand this concept of, of gold and silver as a subtle reference to people. And the New Testament makes that very clear. Okay, so keeping that in mind, keeping in mind the way temple relates to us, let's think about how, how this encouragement here can be, can be something that, that benefits us today. As we saw earlier, we have three main imperatives that are given in this passage, three commands God gives He's, he tells the people to be strong, to work, and not to fear. And these, these things all apply to us in the work of participating with God in building his, his greater final temple. Yes, Haggai, Haggai's message was directed towards the people of his day, and I think that it had it had direct bearing on the physical temple they were building it's not like it's not like God was only speaking about the church, but like so many things in the Old Testament, we see this double fulfillment. The second temple was really amazing by by Jesus' day the disciples are are astonished at it they they describe how beautiful its stones are and how grand and, and massive it is so God did bring about the, the more direct fulfillment of his word to Haggai. And he did give the, the Jews an amazing second temple. But looking even further, it's clear that the ultimate fulfillment from the New Testament is God bringing about the, the temple that's composed of living stones. That's made of people from all nations. So in this work, we need to be strong not to fear and to work. How do we, how do, we do that? I have, I have a couple of suggestions for us here. First, we should pray daily for the fulfillment of the Great Commission and reflect upon this. Peter talks about, looking, uh, talks about us looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. Similarly, Jesus tells us uh, not uh, He tells us to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send more workers into the fields. And he also tells us that the gospel will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. Then he will, he will return. So this, con- this this focus of wanting to see the Great Commission brought to be- Fulfillment should not just be an occasional thought for us, but this should be something that we daily pray about and reflect on if we want to be a people who are, are really longing for the, the greater temple to be brought to completion. And the second thing I'd like to encourage us to do is to answer the question, how could my life contribute to this outcome? As we saw earlier, God's presence with us doesn't mean that we kick back and relax, but we should all be thinking about specific ways that our lives can contribute to the building of this great temple. So I would like to call us to call each one of us in the next couple of days to set a specific vision for this and write it down somewhere where you... We'll have it safe where you can regularly review it. Recently, we did an exercise as, as a congregation of trying to imagine what our lives would be like in the next 20 years. Let's take that a step further, and let's think about not just the next 20 years, but however however long we live. At the end of our lives, what is the impact that that we are going to make for God's kingdom, each one of us individually. Maybe a region of the world will, will come to mind, maybe a specific goal or metric, maybe a, a people group that you have a heart for that you want to see reached, or maybe maybe, for some of us it would be Bible translation, whatever it would be, what is, what is your mark going to be when it comes to bringing about The fulfillment of joining God in bringing about the fulfillment of this greater temple. And I hope that we would all hold on to this statement for regular review. So, to summarize, in conclusion, God Almighty works with his people to make his latter temple greater than the former, and he does this by encouraging the builders in their present discouragement. And by intervening in in the present and in the future to glorify his temple. God expects us, the builders, to give our all because of the knowledge that he is with us. Now I'd like to like to return to William Carey and use use him as an example here for us. I'll give a few more facts about him. I, I said earlier that he was the father of modern missions, and he's not called that for for no reason. He had a burden for the people of India and he went to India and because of his mission there in his lifetime saw 700 converts. That's a, that's a lot of people. I think most of us most of us would be like more than thrilled if if we could convert so many people or be responsible for the conversion of so many people in our lifetimes. But Even more impressive is not the number of people he converted in his lifetime, but the foundations he laid for so many things that set, that enabled other people to later on make tremendous impact and the legacy he left behind. He translated the Bible into Bengali, Oriya, Marathi, Hindi, Assamese, and Sanskrit. That's... Six languages right there. That's pretty crazy. And he translated parts of the Bible into 29 other languages and dialects. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, oh, he must have been like a super genius. He must have just been like someone who was really smart. None of us could ever hope to do that. That's crazy. And maybe so. Maybe, <laughs> maybe he was pretty smart. I mean, tw- 29 languages is pretty, pretty <laughs> ambitious there. But... He, he has a different take on this. He, he attributes it to something else, not to his intellect. But he writes, If after my death anyone should think it worth his while to write my life, I will give you a criterion by which he may judge its correctness. If he gives me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond this is too much. I can plod. In other words... He said, he said about his life that he was a man of perseverance, and I think we can see that. Not only did he have an impressive legacy, but he faced setback after setback in his life. When you read about these things, it's so frustrating. Places where he would, he would work, burning down, and his translation efforts being totally lost. The opposition of people who should have been supporting him. So many different things, but he said... I can, I can plod. That's what I can do. And he set his mind to the work that was before him. And just like we see in the call today from Haggai, work, he was a man who really took that seriously. And even, even though he d- doesn't think that he was anything impressive in other respects, he says, I can do that. I can, I can work. I can plod. So to remind us, let's all, in the next couple of days, write down a, a vision for how we want to further this process of, of bringing the Great Commission to its completion. And let's hold, that, hold on to that for regular review. With that, let's pray. Father, we just acknowledge that the work that is before us is far too great for us. And without your help, we could never hope to bring it to completion. But we thank you that you are with us. And we thank you that you call us to work and that you promise to be with us in that work. Thank you, God, for the example also of those who have gone before us that we have to encourage us, to show to show us that this truth really does work out in real life. And I do pray that you would help every person in this room to Commit anew today to a bold vision for how you could work in their lives, how you could work in our lives to bring about the completion of your beautiful, glorious temple built with living stones. In Jesus' name.